I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy because he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Today I'm speaking with a former CIA agent who uses his spy skills and teaches everyday people. He has mastered the art of communication. He can either be your best friend or your worst enemy. You decide. Andrew Bustamante, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey. Thank you so much. So now you've got your traveling entrepreneur set up? Oh my gosh, I'll tell you what. It sounds a whole lot more romantic than it actually is. Mm, let's talk about <laughs> it. Let's talk about it. How is uh, Hollywood treating you? Oh man. You know, it's really interesting. So a couple of things. Being a traveling entrepreneur, it sounds like there's a really romantic thing at first because you feel like you get to be in all these different places. You get to, you know, kind of live in a suitcase and eat at these great restaurants and meet all these cool people. In reality, it's a constant search for clean food, for reliable lodging, for strong Wi-Fi, for civilization, right? Because if you lose those things, your whole world comes wrecking down on you, right? Like one sick day for an entrepreneur is a loss in sales, missed appointments, missed business development for the next two weeks or the next two months. It's not nearly as romantic as people make it out to be. It's still pretty cool, but it's just not nearly the famous life people want it to be when you read it in books or watch it in the movies. Also, how does being a father play into that? Yeah, that's, you know, being a dad is probably the hardest part because for me at least, and one of the things I'm the most excited about talking with you Rena is about fatherhood and about my experience with my dad and, and what I do with my kids and the whole legacy we're trying to build as entrepreneurs. But you find yourself away from the one thing that matters most to you, right? You find yourself taking time and effort and attention away from the kids. And the kids are the thing that's the truly limited resource, right? They're only kids once and only for a limited period of time. And then it's gone. And I mean, my kids are 10 and almost six. Six, and that's still very young, but I can already see what all the old timers talk about when they say it's gone in a blink of an eye because, you know, I already have a hard time recalling the memories of my toddlers and my babies. And that's just because I'm overwhelmed with memories of, you know, little boys and little girls growing up and doing, doing awesome things. 
And what do they want the most from you? You know, my kids are actually really pretty cool. My kids, my kids are homeschooled, first of all. They've never been to a public school. They've never been, my daughter has never been to a daycare. My son went to a daycare, which was a big part of how we decided to leave CIA ultimately, what made us decide to keep them home. But my kids have been with me and they've traveled with me. They've grown this business with me. They've done everything with me since they were little. So they're really understanding and they're really cool. But the thing that they want is just to be able to play with me. It's the thing that they keep asking for it. And I love it when I can give it to them because I have the energy and the time and, you know, the patience because for parents, we know that it's not easy to play kids games because kids games are, they don't make sense sometimes. But when I can give them that, it feels really good. And then there's lots of days where I can't play with them when they want to play. So right now we have a double decker fort built in our living room because at 930 last night, they wanted to create like a Bedouin camp they know what Bedouins are because we lived in the Emirates, the United Arab Emirates. So we built a Bedouin camp at 9.30 last night so they could sleep in the Bedouin camp. 10 minutes after we built it and turned off the lights, they just wanted to sleep in their own beds. So it's still set up in the living room, even as I sit here talking to you. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about the homeschool experience. It's funny. I never thought that I would even consider that until the <laughs> pandemic happened. Yeah. The pandemic was interesting because it forced the idea of schooling at home. And I'm going to differentiate between schooling at home and homeschooling. The COVID pandemic kind of threw everybody for a loop. So my wife and I decided very deliberately in 2018 to homeschool our children and this specific type of homeschooling that we wanted to explore was something called unschooling. And there's lots of reasons for that. Social conditioning, educational system reform is needed and, and not existing, right? And then there's the total game of roulette that you play where your house determines what school district, your school district determines how much funding, your funding determines, and then you've got administrators and career teachers who decide how much attention your child does and doesn't get. So there's, there were all these variables, all these things that we didn't have control over, all these things that we didn't know. And my wife and I both came from a public school system. We both went into a university system. We followed all the rules. So we know exactly what it's like to be an overlooked and underserved student and still succeed. And we just wanted something better for our kids. So we made the very deliberate decision to unschool them, which means to school them in a way where they direct their own learning. So when they're interested in math, we talk about math. When they're interested in dinosaurs, we talk about dinosaurs. When they're interested in whatever, we follow their interests. And then it's our responsibility to bring in all of the different elements of education, history, anthropology, language, geography, science, math, right? Our job is to bring those elements into whatever topic they want to cover. That's been our choice since our daughter was about a year old and our son was five years old and it's worked out really well since then. And now we have kids that they're, they're not perfect kids. Like in the edge, according to all things educational, and this is one of the things I love and hate about the educational system, your average teacher, your average diplomat or your average bureaucrat wants to look at a child and say, they are seven, they are in second grade, they meet second grade levels. Here's the standards for a second grade student. If your seven-year-old meets those standards, you're good. If they exceed those standards, there's nothing special. You're still just good. But if they fall below those standards, now all of a sudden there's something wrong with your kid. So I've got a 10-year-old who draws, like he writes numbers backwards still. He doesn't really like math. He doesn't like doing his multiplication tables. He has a hard time reading an analog clock. All those things are bad, but he'll tell you the history of the Greco-Roman wars. He'll talk about, you know, gods all day long. He'll write his own stories. He'll recall things from earth sciences, chemistry sciences. I mean, the kid's fantastic. He knows his periodic table of elements. There's some really impressive stuff that they can delve into because they're naturally interested in it. 
if I had a chance to go back in time, a big part of how I parent for well or for ill is if I had a chance to go back in time and do it the way I'm trying to give it to my kids, would I have enjoyed it? And I'm pretty sure I would have really enjoyed being able to just dive into ancient Egypt everything when I was hot for ancient Egypt. Because by the time I was 11, 12 years old, I wasn't so interested in ancient Egypt anymore. You know what I mean? That is amazing. I just cannot imagine doing that. I mean, I don't <laughs> think most parents can. It's a huge commitment. It is. And it's a it's a huge commitment of time and energy and creativity. And it's honestly the creativity that's the most challenging for me because I'm not a creative person. My wife is a very creative person. When I'm talking about traditional creativity, right? Like I don't think about storytelling like you do. I don't take apart movies for their cinematography and their audio quality and their imagery and their color balance. I don't see any of that. I am pretty dumb when it comes to all things artistic and creative. But the one thing that I do kind of get creative about is problem solving. So for us, I built my digital business, Everyday Spy, around the fact that I wanted to be home with my kids for one of the many reasons being to homeschool them. So I've built my business around my life and I've been, and our business has become a family business. My wife is my second in command for the business. My wife is very different than me. She does not like teaching the kids. She does not like spending hours with the kids. She does not like, you know, nursing sore feet and clipping hangnails and brushing hair. It's not her thing. She wants to be a professional and she wants to be productive outside of the home. I am a very domestic person. I love petting my daughter's back and talking to her about puppies. I would do that all day if I could. So it's worked out really well because I've, I've built a business that is largely automated. My wife takes care of all the technical background to make that automation work. I kind of cast the vision. She makes the vision happen. And then we hire people to do all of the more time-consuming labor. Because again, one of the things that I think is really important to highlight is the difference between people who have freedom in their life and people who have less freedom in their life is whether or not they're doing jobs where they trade their time for money or whether they trade their ideas for money. And there will always be people out there who have to trade their time for money. And I'm very happy to be able to hire those types of people because they're looking to sell their time. They have a very real skill. I'm looking to save my time, give it to my family, and I have, you know, real good money to spend on people who have talent and are willing to trade their talent for a paycheck. That goes into your one of your most recent episodes of your podcast where you talk about the difference between consumers and producers. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So my podcast is all about lessons that I learned at CIA and how I can take those lessons and apply them into everyday life, right? That means business life, personal life, professional life. And one of those lessons that we learned at CIA was the difference between a producer and a consumer. Now at CIA, we talk about producers and consumers through the lens of intelligence collection. Intelligence is all the secrets that we collect from sources around the world, right? So CIA, if you don't already know, CIA goes out, steals secrets from friends and allies or friends and enemies like brings those secrets back to the president, order, you know, organizes them, analyzes them, synthesizes them into a report, and then gives our president access to secrets that other people are trying to keep from us. And then the president can use those to make economic decisions and national security decisions and whatever else. It's not a clean sport, but it's an important sport nonetheless. So in the intelligence world, we talk about producers as people who create intelligence. 
intelligence reports, intelligence secrets, people who collect secrets themselves. And then we talk about consumers as the people who consume that information, which is really just the president and a few senators and Congress people who have access to the same information the president can see, right? That's your Senate Intelligence Committee, your House Intelligence Committee. So there's just a few individuals who become the consumers of intelligence. But when you take that same lesson out of the world of intelligence and you apply it to business and life, you start to realize that the entire world is comprised of consumers and producers, people who really do nothing but consume, consume content, consume packed, you know, canned goods, consumed processed food, consumed fresh food, people who basically go out there and spend their money. Those are consumers. If all you do is spend your money, then you're a consumer. Producers are the people who have the ability to build a service or a product that gets consumers to spend their money on that product or on that service. So essentially producers are in a position where they can actually produce money. They can produce profit. They can produce income through nothing more than one of their own ideas, right? You create a recipe for a special new chocolate cake with pineapple. The world has never seen your chocolate cake with pineapple. You put it on a blog post and you tell people they pay $2 so they can download your recipe. A hundred people buy your $2 recipe. You have now created $200 out of nothing but an idea. And the people who have paid you, they're all consumers. They're too busy spending their money to come up with their own ideas. I'm telling you right now, Rena, I piss a lot of people off when I talk about this stuff. So if anybody is listening and disagrees with me or doesn't like me, just don't like me. It's not Rena's fault. I'm just the one that says rude things. Why does that piss people off? Because people, well, <laughs> again, there's two reasons. One, people really get irritated when you say out loud the things that they're afraid of in their own head. We all have a little, what I call head trash, playing in our brain all the time, right? And this is, again, this is another CIA skill. So here's, here's the metrics, Rena. These, these metrics always blow my mind. So the average person has 60,000 thoughts in a day. Have you got any idea how many of those 60,000 thoughts are negative? Probably 80 to 90% of them. 47,000 thoughts a day are negative thoughts. That's your average person. That's like, it doesn't matter if they're making $180,000 a year or $60,000 a year. The majority of your thoughts are negative thoughts. What else is interesting is the average person does not express their negative thoughts about themselves. They express their negative thoughts about others. They express their negative thoughts about the environment, about the circumstance, about politics, about whatever, but they don't express the negative thoughts they have about themselves. So those thoughts that you have about yourself become compounding recurring thoughts. When you vent about how your mother-in-law, you know, didn't listen to you or your boss ignored your proposal, you vent that out. It goes from the back brain to the frontal cortex. It comes out, it's communicated, and essentially your brain has purged itself of that thought. But the thoughts that you and I have that we don't like about each ourselves, those thoughts just play on repeat all day long. I don't like my hairline. I don't like my cowlick. What about this pimple on my forehead? It just goes on and on and on and on. So when I am the person who comes out on my podcast or on a YouTube podcast or on the television show, and I say out loud the thing that people don't like because they're telling it to themselves in their head, it makes them very angry because they've been telling themselves, but they've never been validated. And now I'm validating them. So all those people out there who have great ideas and they know they have great ideas, but they never do anything to make their idea a reality, I call them out all the time. And I tell them, you could be a producer. You could be building your own life. You could be shaping your own future. You could be leaving a legacy for your kids and your wife and the future generations that carry your last name. 
But instead, you're trading your time for a paycheck and one day your company will forget about you and that's the end of it, right? You're gonna work until you're 67 years old and then you're gonna hope that you get some kind of decent you know, social security payment so that you can live out your retired days making $45,000 a year. You know, that's, that's a depressing thought. It's a thought that a lot of us have in our head, but we never say it out loud and nobody else says it out loud. So it becomes this persistent, depressing thought. I come in, I say it out loud, and then it just hurts. That's what pisses people off. Who said it out loud to you? So it was really interesting. When I was at CIA, what happened is it was like a light switch. So CIA is not like it is in the movies. Yes, it's exciting. Yes, it's fun. Yes, you do some amazing things, but it's still a career. You're still a government employee, right? So you start as a GS nothing, GS7, GS8, GS9. The maximum you can promote yourself to is what's known as CIS or Senior Intelligence Specialist, which is a step or two or three above a GS15. So you already know there's only like 10 steps. That means there's only about 10 promotions you can get in your entire 30 year career. And you're gonna go from $50,000 a year, you're gonna max out at like $130,000 a year. If you're in a war zone and you're gone from home and you're doing dangerous things, you might make $160,000 a year, but you're never gonna make $200,000 a year. You're never gonna make $190,000 a year as a government employee. Those are the kinds of salaries that 26 year old salespeople can pull in. You know what I mean? So as I'm sitting here at CIA, I am literally watching the people who are two and three generations ahead of me, careerists who have been in 10 years, 15 years, 25 years. I'm watching their families fall apart. I'm watching their bodies fall apart. I'm watching their health decline. I'm watching their hairline decline. You see it on the face of people every day, bearing the stress and the burden of national security and sacrificing everything that matters to make it to the next promotion because they realize they can't make $90,000 forever, right? You can't be a 57-year-old with two kids in college surviving off of $80,000 a year. You can try, but it's gonna be a very hard life for you and your two college students and your spouse. It clicked one day where I was like, holy smokes, I'm just, I'm in a giant hamster wheel where everybody's kind of, the hamsters are eating each other, trying to see who gets the one or two or three promotions at the senior point of their career. If I were to leave this world and just step out, and even if I went and started all over again, I was 34 when I left CIA. If I were to start all over again at 34, I'd still have 30 working years ahead of me. And even if I was an like a mediocre performer, which I already know I'm a high performer because I went to CIA, if I was just a mediocre performer, I would earn more at the end of those 30 years than I will if I work 30 years here. As a father, especially as a father and a husband, I'm not worried about my title and my rank. I'm literally thinking about when I die, what is the life insurance and the 401k and the financial legacy that I'm leaving my kids and my wife so that they can have a step ahead that I didn't have when I was that age. So that's really what, what did it for me, was realizing that all the lessons that CIA had been teaching me to use to steal secrets and manipulate other people, all those same secrets they were using on us as employees to keep us running in the hamster wheel, to keep us sacrificing our own health, to live in horrible places, to take major risks, to collect secrets, to keep America safe, and then not get rewarded. <laughs> and just because it was the burden of intelligence and it's what you do when you are one of the chosen few. It's an incredible hamster wheel of brainwashing but we volunteer ourselves into it. And thank goodness that there are people who still do that. 
because now I don't have to. And I know you have a tremendous respect for the people who do it. And you even say that you and your wife both miss it. You know, it's funny. I know you did another episode on giving gifts and giving them unexpected. And this morning I went to go get a coffee. I treated myself to a little latte preparing for this conversation. And I went up to the lady who I see frequently. It's a local diner near my house and said, if you were interviewing somebody from the CIA, what would you ask? And she said, I'd ask him if he were trustworthy. That was the first thing. I'll let you answer that in a second. And then the lady behind me was like, I worked in law enforcement for 20 years and my husband was in the military. And then I got into a whole conversation with her. And then I told her your story about the audio engineer on your shoot and how I'm going to let you even tell this better. But basically you were on this shoot. You're a part of a television show that's filming. And there was a medicine man local and he was cold. There was some unexpected weather and it was windy and a guy from your crew took off his own beanie or found him a beanie and a scarf, gave him some clothing to get warm. And then a day or two later, the same guy comes up and gives him a very special gift in return. And so me and this lady got in a whole conversation about it. <laughs> and she was like, my sister's a podcaster here locally in Houston and you need to connect with her. And she's all about manifesting and, you know, meeting people by chance. And, and those are gifts from God and you have to pay attention to these things. I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. <laughs> it's awesome, right? It's really, really awesome. When you start, the way that you're living, the way that most people are living their life right now is not that different from the way a CIA officer lives their life either, right? Because mm. the CIA officer, a CIA officer lives undercover most of the time. When you're a field officer, you live undercover. Undercover life looks just like normal everyday life because it's supposed to blend in. But what's happening now, Rena, and what your story kind of shows is you're still living the same life. You're just seeing it through a different lens. Now you're seeing past the superficial and you're seeing into people's motivations, people's intentions, people's natural course of repeatable human behavior. So you ask a question of one person, it's natural human behavior for someone nearby to eavesdrop. So when that person eavesdrops, instead of being offended that someone was listening to your conversation, you think to yourself, well, where's this going? So you put yourself into receive mode and you're like, let's hear where this is gonna go. I mean, shoot, I'm getting more information. I'm getting more knowledge. I'm getting more intelligence. I could be getting an advantage by just keeping my mouth shut, keeping my ears open and seeing what happens. She gets excited, so you get excited. That's called mirroring. When you mirror someone's emotions, they immediately start to connect with you and trust you because they think that you and them are the same person. Not your similar people. They actually, the human brain thinks you are the same person. It's like looking in a mirror. So they just build this subconscious level of trust, which is why they start telling you about their wife and their children and their spouse and their career and how much money they make. It's incredible what happens when you can look at the world around you through the eyes of a spy. Wow. I love that you just made that connection. I seriously reached out to her sister and was like, I just met Sharice. I heard you're <laughs> local. We need to know each other. I, you know, I told her the whole story. I was like, I'm going to check out your podcast, but this is what I do all day long, mm -hmm. every day. I, I really like feel like I've missed my calling in some way. I just interviewed an undercover cop. She worked undercover for 13 years. She was in the police force for 25, but I always wanted to know, cause I love researching people and I love finding unique stories. And I feel like I'm constantly connecting with people all over the place. Like, what does it really take to 
be undercover? Yeah, so I would say there's multiple parts to your question, right? So first of all, in professional intelligence, you've got to understand that there's a number of stovepipes. There isn't one person who does everything. There's a series of specialists who all do their task very well. And then those specialists feed up to whoever the officer is that has to execute the mission. Sometimes that executional officer or that executing officer is a technical officer, right? Sometimes they're placing a bug or they're creating a listening post or they're putting a, a drone in the sky right? So sometimes it's a technical person. Sometimes it's a special forces tier one operator. Sometimes all that intelligence is just there so that a Navy SEAL can kill a person, right? That's sometimes that's what it's for. Or if you have to do a hostage rescue, it's so that a team of raiders from the Marine Corps or a team of Delta soldiers from the army, it's so that this team of five can get in, break through a door, get to a bedroom, grab the hostage, get them out, and then get them back to safety. You never know what your specialist information is going to do. You only know your specific specialty. So when you talk about you love to research people, that specialty in the world of CIA is called targeting. It's actually what my wife did. My wife was a specialist known as a targeter, which is very similar to what you're describing as someone who likes to you know, research people. And my wife is really interesting. She's very different than me, but very, very interesting because as a targeter, she gets really excited about every little piece of information she finds. If she finds a new phone number, if she finds a cousin, if she finds a former job, right? Like whatever she finds connected to her case gets her really excited. And then she wants to dig in more. I'm the kind of person where I'm doing hours of research and I come up with a cousin and I'm like, this is some bullshit. I just spent three hours and all I found was a cousin. Like it just, it's really hard for me to do that kind of concentrated deep dive investigation. So her stovepipe, right, career path was known as targeter. Targeters do that. They can build very expansive dossiers, profiles on targets so that you know a target's allergies, their favorite food, who they dated in high school, who their lost love was, you know, who their favorite child is, what their drink of choice is. It's incredible what a targeter can find. And then that package that they create, that dossier, would go to a field officer. And then a field officer is somebody who has the skills to basically go out undercover into the field and try to meet the person that the targeter researched. And it's a different set of skills, right? That's more of the world where I come from. Those skills, you have to be flexible. You have to be risk tolerant. You have to be able to throw yourself in front of a person as if this is your one chance to talk to that person, to impress them and to get them to like you. We have to eat food we don't like to eat. We have to talk about things we don't like to talk about. We have to force ourselves into a conversation and then take control of that conversation come hell or high water because this might be our one chance to get in front of this North Korean general or this you know, African drug lord or whoever it might be. So we have to be ready to go all in at a moment's notice. My wife, the researcher, she's an introvert. It takes a lot of energy to talk to somebody. It takes a lot more energy to talk to somebody who you disagree with on a moral level, like a terrorist or a dictator, right? I'm an extrovert. So by being around people at all, my energy goes up. And when I'm talking to somebody who's morally compromised, my excited level goes up even higher because I'm super curious how this person thinks. Why do you think it's okay? to sell children across a border? Why do you think it's okay to smuggle drugs through prosthetic limbs? Like, I wanna know how that person's brain works because that's my natural, my natural curiosity takes over. 
So we have all these different subcategories, whether you're a technical officer or a linguist or an analyst or a meteorologist, right? It's amazing all the different skills that go into creating one mission. And that's one of the things that movies don't really show you is it takes a team of people to make one James Bond even possible. That it's not James Bond out there by himself talking to Q and talking to who knows who else. It's just James Bond and he's the head of a team, right? He's the pointy end of a spear that has like 15 people behind him. The real world is very different than what it looks like in the movies. And I, I wanna add one more thing because you said, could you have done it? Is it something that, you know, you ask yourself the question of, did I miss my calling? Maybe you did, frankly, maybe you did. But the thing that, that I think is really important to share with people is that when you're good at talking to people, usually you spend that gift talking to people you like to talk to. Our job is to talk to the scum of the universe. Our job is to talk to horrible, horrible people, pedophiles, drug abusers, traitors against their own country, right? Like our job is to find and talk to those people, make them our friend, build a long-term relationship with them so that they will give us secrets in exchange for us enabling whatever it is that is their personal vice. So you're finding a way to give money or drugs or pornography to people who can't get it in their own country. And that's what makes them keep coming back to you. So it's a very dark, twisted, compromised type of relationship that you're building, but you're always building it through the lens of making America safer. It's much easier, you know, for me at least, it was much easier for me to carry out that job because every time I enabled some warlord in Africa to keep recruiting child soldiers, I knew that I was doing it and it was going to keep my family safe, my kids safe, my grandparents safe, my parents safe, because America comes first when you work in the American government. When you're in the infrastructure ensuring American national security, American primacy is your number one objective. If that means you're killing the planet or hurting innocent people somewhere else, at least it's not American people who are being hurt. At least it's not innocent American children, innocent American elderly. Other countries are going to do what they do. Our job is to protect our resources here at home. When did you know that you wanted to do that? I never knew that I wanted to do that. Uh, I was an Air Force officer. I went to the Air Force Academy for college, and I was actually trying to leave the military when CIA found me. I was a horrible soldier. And if anybody listening to the show knew me when I was in uniform, they would say the same thing. They'd be like, Andy was a horrible soldier. I didn't like polishing my shoes. I didn't like cutting my hair. I didn't like shaving my face. I didn't like getting up for roll call in the morning. I didn't like working an eight hour day when there wasn't eight hours of work to do. I was terrible in the military. So when my time came that I could leave, I was actually trying to go do something completely opposite. It was like breaking up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You know how when, you, when you're like 25 and you break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you break up and you go 180 degrees from that last boyfriend or girlfriend. You rebound the complete opposite direction. And when really maybe the boyfriend or girlfriend was pretty good and you only need to change like five degrees, instead we choose to go completely the opposite direction. So when I <laughs> that left- That got me married. <laughs> That's funny. When I left the military, I was trying to go a completely opposite direction. So I actually applied to the U.S. Peace Corps. 
And my thinking was, they don't have to cut their hair, they don't have to shave their face, they don't have to shine their boots. And instead of warmongering, I was a nuclear missile officer. So I, I was the one holding the keys and pointing nuclear missiles, getting ready for World War III. I was like, instead of being the warmonger, I can be the guy who goes and helps starving children in Africa. And I can be the guy that brings microfinance to Indonesia. And I can be the guy who builds schools, right? So I was trying to go into the Peace Corps. During that application, I got a tap on the shoulder from, from an unknown known recruiter in the government that said, hey, if you think this work might be interesting, have we got an offer for you? That's essentially how I found my way to CIA. And then I'll be very honest, as a 27-year-old military academy graduate, when they told me that they were considering me for a role with CIA, I wasn't going to say no. I was like, let's let's take this as far as it goes. Because if I'm going to drive Lamborghinis, wear suits, shoot guns, and you know, drink cocktails, that's a good life for me. It wasn't until after I was fully recruited that I realized that's not what life looks like. There wasn't any of that? There, unfortunately, there were no supermodels or supercars. Yeah. There was just a lot of third world armpits of the world. <laughs> and... And some dirty hotel room floors, for sure. What was the scariest... I don't know, stakeout. I mean, can you talk about any of that? Our operational histories are classified. We sign a lifetime secrecy agreement. And in that secrecy agreement, it tells us that anytime we want to talk operational details about our individual past, it has to go through a review and clearance process at CIA. So it's it's funny to me because I've built a business around what CIA does let us talk about. And for some reason, nobody's ever talked about it before. I don't really know why there has never been a CIA officer to come out and talk openly about all all the incredible skills that they teach us to handle everyday life. I don't know why it hasn't happened, but now I'm doing that. But when it comes to my own operational background, that becomes heavily classified. What I can say is that I spent a lot of time in Asia and I spent a lot of time in Latin America. And in those two places, I was looking for dangerous people and I was involved in stuff in activities that you wouldn't find your typical Caucasian person participating in. And you can, again, I'm not trying to be racist, but this is the way it really works. If you're white, there's certain things you can't do at CIA. When you're brown, there's lots of things you can do at CIA, right? Here's something else that's interesting. I am pro women's everything, right? I, I was raised by a single mom. My grandmother was a divorced grandmother when I was young. Like my wife is a hard charger. My daughter is a hard charger. So I love and absolutely believe that women are at least equal to men. Very likely women are slightly stronger and better and more resilient than men because they have babies. And there's all sorts of other science behind women's blood pressure and women's neural pathways, et cetera. But my point is when you're a woman at CIA, there's a ton of stuff you're not allowed to do. Because if you go to a foreign country where women are not equal to men, you become a target, a target of crime, a target of hate crime, a target of rape, a target of all sorts of stuff. However, there are a lot of things that only women can do at CIA. You can't send a man to infiltrate a community of women in the Middle East. You can't put a man in a burqa and expect him to get anywhere very quickly. Like your gender, your skin color, your accent, your eye color, your hair color, it all comes into play when CIA is considering who to send on a foreign operation or on a foreign mission, because it all matters in the eyes of the country where you're going to be operating. In the United States, we don't think that way. 
We think about, you know, we think about people as individuals. We're the only country in the world that thinks about people as individuals. Everybody else out there thinks about people based on birthright, last name, skin color, total family wealth. Like it's, it's a very different world once you get past the boundaries of the United States. What other misinformation are we being fed? There's a lot, actually. So one of the big things that I want to, especially in today's world, right? If you read the headlines right now, there's all sorts of stuff out there that can scare you. There's war in Europe. There's a pending war with China. There's an economic recession that's looming overhead. Banks are failing, right? Like it's the end of the world. World War III is on a lot of headlines right now, right? It's important to understand that the government has a whole heck of a lot more information than they share. That's important. That's a good thing. You want the government to have secrets because then they can make moves, they can make decisions, policy decisions that nobody knows about because they don't, the average person doesn't realize that the government has those secrets. And if the average American doesn't know the secrets that the American government has, that also means our enemies around the world don't have information that our government is trying to keep secret. So when the government hides something from people, it's not just to hide it from their own citizens, it's to hide it from their enemies because enemies mine information from the average person. That's a form of intelligence collection called open source collection or open source intelligence, OSINT. If information that the government has that protects American citizens is released to the public, that means it's essentially released to our enemies and our enemies can use it against us. So because there's not a lot of information the government shares, what happens is the media, news media, television media, print media, they come in and they have to start guessing or conjecturing or speculating over what the government is doing. But then when the media presents their information, our generation and our parents' generation before us, we were all taught to trust the media. Because back in the 1950s and through the 1970s, there was a law in place that said media had to be fair and balanced. But in the 1970s, that law expired and it was not renewed. So the birth of CNN, the birth of the Jerry Springer show, the birth of 24-hour news, all of that happened at the same time that that law expired. So there's actually no legal precedent right now for news to be fair, accurate, and unbiased. So the world we live in today is full of speculation designed exclusively to get you to read more news. Read more news, see more ads, get more scared, read more news, see more ads, get more scared, and you can see how the cycle works. It's another predictable human behavior, and it's what the media thrives on. That's why you don't see good news stories. That's why you don't see humanitarian stories. That's why all you see is bad news stories, because bad news triggers fear. Fear triggers the instinctive response to learn more, and you learn more by reading more. And the more you read, the more ads you see, the more ads you see, the more money you spend, and the economy keeps moving forward. How would you define freedom of speech? So it's not about how I define freedom of speech. This is another area where I'm going to piss people off. Freedom of speech is defined. It is clearly defined in the, the Constitution of the United States, right? The freedom of speech only applies to when you speak out against your government and it prevents your government from then taking legal action against you because of what you said about the government. That's the only thing that applies to freedom of speech. Rena, if I sit here and call you names, if I tell you you're a horrible person, I tell you you're a 
you're a defunct business owner and you're a liar. I am actually doing something called defaming you, which a lawyer, your lawyer can sue me for doing that. And it is not protected by freedom of speech because you and I are private citizens. Neither of us represents the government. So you could sue me for just calling you names. People don't understand that that's that true freedom of speech does not let you say whatever you want. It lets you speak out against your elected government and it protects you from your elected government coming back to take penalize you. It does not protect you from saying stuff about other people, from saying stuff about, you know, your coworkers. It doesn't mean that you can get out and start talking trash about businesses or humanitarians or the church or whatever else. You could get sued legally and lawfully by anybody for using hate speech, words of aggression, defamation. There's a whole litany of things out there. So I would love to say that's my opinion. It's not my opinion. That's actually codified law. <laughs> my dad told me if I can stay out of court, stay out of court. <laughs> exactly. Your dad's a wise man. I've learned that listening to your show. <laughs> What did you learn from your dad? My story with my parents is not a happy story. My father was killed in a violent crime when I was newborn. So oh I never met my father. Yeah. I didn't find his grave until I was 21 years old because my mother and my father married too young. They had me too young and they were going through a divorce. He ran away from the divorce because it was just whatever. It was just what you do when you're 19 years old in 1979, right? Anyways, long story short, he was killed in California. My mother had me, and then I was raised for the first five years of my life by my mother and my divorced grandmother. So I was raised in a female-only home. And then my mom remarried when I was five, and my stepdad wanted nothing to do with my mom's family. So he actually moved us from our home in Arizona to Pennsylvania. And we grew up in a rural Pennsylvania town. My dad was from Indiana. He was a white guy. He was a good husband and he was a good father to his birth daughters, mm. but he was not a good stepdad. And I say that frankly, he was not a good stepdad to me. There are lots of good stepdads that are out there. Now that I'm a father, I realize how gargantuan a task my stepdad must have taken when he adopted me from, when he adopted me, period. He was stepping into a giant storm, right? I was five years old, didn't know my father, didn't have a male role model in my life. Like it was a mess, but nevertheless, from five to 18, I did not have a good relationship with my stepdad. He was clearly favoritist towards my sisters. He was struggling with his own midlife crisis. He was a Vietnam veteran. You know, there was all sorts of stuff that was tough for him. So we didn't have that father-son relationship or that fatherly advice or loving father relationship that I like seeing with you and your dad. It was a very different existence for me. I actually went to a military college to try to heal the relationship that we had. I thought that if I became a military officer, maybe he would approve of me more, right? Maybe he would respect me more. And then when I graduated from the Air Force Academy, and again, I was a horrible soldier and I hated basically every day of my college experience because I was in a military school. And it's not just me, for everybody else out there who's a military academy graduate, you know what I'm talking about. But when I graduated, I made him this shadow box of all of my graduation and all of my military accomplishments. He didn't even blink at it. So it was just, that was a day in my life that, that 20, 22 years old when I graduated from the academy, where I was like, you know what? I need to be done trying to impress my stepdad because it, he's never going to change. So I just need to start all over again. What's really weird, Rena, is being 42 years old now with two of my own children and looking at my own parenting strategy now, I realize that my strategy was essentially built 
off of my stepdad. I took what my stepdad did, used that as the role model of what not to do for my kids. So instead of choosing a target that I wanted to be, I chose a target that I didn't want to be. So the question that goes through my head with a lot of my parenting decisions is, what would my dad do? Don't do that. And that's like, that's my gauge for good parenting. So it's really interesting because I've heard your dad on your show talk about how no matter who's on the show, no matter what their experience was with their parents, we're all programmed and conditioned at a certain level because of the experience we had with our parents. And that's absolutely true with me too. And it's a, it's a twisted, weird relationship now where I am both disdainful of my stepdad and thankful and grateful to my stepdad. Because without him, I wouldn't be who I am today. Even though the things that I love the most about who I am today were not fostered or cultivated by him. But even still, he took a chance when other men wouldn't have. He stepped up when other men wouldn't have, right? He was a fantastic father to my stepsisters, my half-sisters, and I have a good relationship with both of my half-sisters, right? So if anything, now I kind of feel pity for my dad because he lost the opportunity to raise a son. I have the opportunity to raise a son and I'm having a blast raising my son. So it's a really interesting, yeah, I didn't mean to take it in such a dark direction there. No, I actually love how reflective you were. I mean, that is amazing that you can see the sacrifice and that you can see the good in him, but also recognize how you want to do things differently. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Thank you for asking about it. I mean, honestly, I do a lot of interviews and 99% of people only ask me about CIA. They don't really ask me about, about me. I was somebody long before I was a CIA officer. I was a, I was a kid. I was a son. I was a grandchild. I was a boyfriend. I was a, you know, there was lots of, there's lots of history there. Ooh, tell CIA. me about the grandson and the boyfriend. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So my grandmother is and still is probably my favorite person in the world. Like I just, I love, I love my grandmother, my, my maternal grandmother. Cause I never knew my, my paternal side of the family. I never really knew because when my father died, that whole line to his family, they were a broken family. So they also all just kind of melted away. It wasn't until I was in my mid twenties that I took the initiative to try to find that side of the family. And then when I did find that side of the family, I found them as a mid 20 year old, right? So way beyond the age where I was going to put up and tolerate infighting and gossip and drama and whatever else. So I very intentionally stepped in to find that family, saw what they were all about, stepped out and left that family alone. So with the exception of just a few of my cousins from my paternal side, basically everybody else is not interesting to me, not somebody I want to invest in or expose my children too. But yeah, my grandmother earlier this year or last year, I flew to pick her up in Arizona, brought her back here to Florida and then took care of her here in Florida, flew her back to Arizona to drop her off and then flew back to Florida. It was just, it was a reminder of how special she is and how much she means to me. And it was also an enlightening experience to realize that I don't have the time to fly and escort my grandmother across the country like that. So now we're actually looking at just moving the whole family across the country next year so we can be closer to her. I love that. Because she's in those sunset years, you know? So now is the time to to really show her how much she means to us. We're about Uh, the the same age. Like I'm 43. And actually I just, my husband is so gracious. Like he, thank goodness. I mean, he lets 
us spend all of his vacation days pretty much visiting my grandma because I have a very special relationship with my grandparents too. Mm -hmm. They're like second parents to me. I mean, my parents had me young. My mom was 19 and my dad was 23. So my grandparents really were in their 40s and 50s. And now my grandmother's 94. And yeah, my dad's mom. And we're going to spend all of Passover, all of, you know, spring break there so I can hold her hand and tell her that I love her. And my kids, they like eating at the restaurants in Florida and swimming in the pool, but they know that I need that. What part of Florida are your grandparents in? She's in Hollandale. I don't know that part, but it's near North Miami beach. Oh, very nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. It's our stories are very similar. My grandmother was my second parent. I know exactly what you're talking about there. She was like a virile, young, healthy person when I was a baby because my mom had me at 19 years old. Oh, wow. Yep. And then my my father was just a, a year or two older than her when they got married, when he was killed. But I know exactly what you mean, that the child, the, the firstborn of a young mother ends up being raised by grandma. <laughs> In that generation, yes. Absolutely in that and generation. I actually feel a lot of times sad that my kids are growing up without that. Do you? I'm working very hard to make sure my parent my children don't grow up without that. So so for us, my wife's parents are extremely engaged with our children, which is great, but they're also still living their own life. So we have the finances and we have a digital business and we homeschool our kids. So we have the flexibility to take the kids to our to my wife's parents often. They call their grandpa Babu. There's no reason except that when my son was, you know, learning how to speak, Babu was what my grandfather, what my father-in-law used to say to my son in the crib. He would come in and he would say Babu 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 Babu. And then my son's first word was Babu. And since then, grandpa has become Babu. Nobody in the family cares why it's true. I love that his nickname came from himself. (laughs) I just, I think it's a beautiful thing. But we take our kids to see them frequently. We used to take our kids to see my mom as well, but my mom's a different kind of, a different kind of grandparent. She's the kind of grandparent who says, I did my job raising you. You are successful. You are on your own. I'm okay with pictures. And when I want to see them, I'll come to you. Right. Oh my God. That's exactly the same. (laughs) My dad was (laughs) relate to that. I say all the time, I'm like, a grandma isn't just in pictures. I'm like, it's not just about the picture. It's about the time. It's enlightening as parents, when you become a parent, it's enlightening to see who your parents are as people. Because until you become a parent yourself, you always look at your parents as parents. Once you become a parent, you're basically on equal ground with your own parents. And then you start to see them as just people, people who have disappointment, people who have frustrations, people who are good at math, bad at writing, who knows what, they're just people. And then you have to decide if they're the kind of person you want to have around your kids. And that's another really difficult conversation to have, right? And and what's fascinating is the only person who's not really receptive to that conversation is my mom, is my parent. When I talk to her and I say- So much the same, wow. (laughs) That's really interesting. Yeah, I totally can't have that conversation either. Yeah, I try. Yeah. But then she she has a weird sort of memory that kicks in where she thinks of herself very differently than what actually happened. Oh my God. 
That it, my dad will be able to very much relate to this conversation. <laughs> that is for sure. But I'm sure there are things that you very much love and respect about her now that you are a parent. But like you said, you have to draw your boundaries. Yeah, you're exactly right. There are countless things I love and respect about my mother. My mother and my grandmother were my heroes. They were my heroes until I was an embarrassingly old age. And even then, they didn't fall out of hero status because of something they did wrong. They just couldn't keep up with the hero status of my wife. So now my wife is my hero. I mean, my wife bore my two children. My wife essentially helped me birth a business. And my wife and I have gone on to continue. We have huge things that we will get to announce this year about our business that we're currently under NDA. So we can't disclose. I'm sorry, Rena. I know. I'm like, uh, this is going to be a round two. <laughs> but we have these huge things that we've been able to accomplish that we get to announce this year. And none of it would have been possible for me without my wife, without her research talent, her professional talent, her professional drive, yes, but also it wouldn't have been possible without her patience, without her love, without her sacrifice, right? Because I mean, let's, let's be honest, when one of these kids gets sick, there are two parents up at night, right? When one of these parent, when one of these kids has a nightmare, the first person to their to the bedside is the person who stays up comforting that child. And my wife and I are constantly working hand in hand to raise our kids. We're very excited to be parents. We are both very intentional, deliberate parents in large part because we grew up in houses where we were not intentional or deliberate choices because that's the way it was. In our generation, Rena, like you said, you just, you didn't intentionally have children oftentimes. You just stopped trying not to have children and saw what happened. Yeah, I'm product of that <laughs> for sure. Oh my gosh. Also, I saw like on your Instagram that you do show pictures of your children. You show pictures of date night. I was wondering like, are you ever scared about privacy or because you have been in the CIA? Like, Yeah, let's, let's piss some more people off. There's no such thing as privacy. If you think that there's such a thing as privacy, you are letting yourself believe a lie. There is no such thing as privacy. Mm. Again, your privacy laws only apply to the government coming in and invading your privacy. That's the only place where your privacy laws apply. As soon as you buy one of these and you put your contact list on there, and then you sign up for some app that asks for access to your contact list, you're what's in legal terms, you're opting in to sharing your private information. So as soon as you say that you want to turn on Google Maps or Apple Maps, as soon as you say that you're okay with sharing data for performance reasons, as soon as you acknowledge that you will accept ads on your phone, all those screens where we click yes, accept, yes, accept, yes, accept, that's just you giving away your information, right? And that's how technology works. Technology is the reason you get technology for free is because they can monetize your private data. You're giving them permission to monetize your private data. There is no such thing as privacy. Unless you are off the grid, not connected to Wi-Fi, not connected to cellular, and you don't have a primary care physician, you don't have any kind of like public school system. Like think about it. Every time you register your kids for school or every time you register yourself at a doctor's office, you're giving them your social security number, your address, your your payment history, your employer. There's no such thing as privacy through the lens of commercial exchange. The only place where privacy is protected is that the federal government cannot invade your privacy without just cause, without due cause. What about so for bad me, guys? Like, how that, do we keep our kids safe from scary people? So this is where that responsibility falls on us, right? So you're correct. I post very openly about my whole family. 
family. I share pictures of my kids. I share their names. I talk about where we are. What CIA taught me is that you can be truthful, but don't be truthful and timely. Mm. So I don't post a picture of what I'm eating for dinner at dinner, but I'll tell everybody in the world that I was eating at whatever restaurant 24 hours ago, because they'll always be 24 hours behind where I really am. So all of my social media, everything I do is actually done past tense, even my podcast. So even when I record my podcast and I say, I'm doing this and here's what I'm doing and this is what we're working on, I'm recording that podcast in real time, but scheduling it to go live three to five days after I'm no longer in that situation, right? So that's how you make sure that we call it a lag or a delay. You always want to delay the information that's publicly available because then anyone who is intending to do you harm is always behind your trail. That's why I don't mind sharing family. It's also part of my business vision and mission to be very transparent and very open. I'm, I'm sure it's not lost on you that I'm trying to be the most honest, open and transparent CIA officer out there. That those are things that don't normally go together. So by virtue of the fact that I get to be that person and I like showing people the benefits of the skills that I've learned, I feel like we're building a very good legacy for our children as well. They are learning transparency. They are learning honesty. They are learning authenticity. They are learning you know, the value of business and the value of contribution, but they're also learning how to keep themselves safe at an individual level while maintaining all of those virtues. That's amazing. I mean, do you feel like those skills are why you want to keep your kids at home and from what you've seen in the world too? I mean, did the CIA so, play into fatherhood? For sure, for sure. We live in a world that likes to outsource responsibility. Mm. We outsource our personal security to the police department. We outsource our children's education to the local school district. We outsource our cleanliness of our water to the local utility station. We outsource you know, the quality of our food to the local grocery store. We outsource everything. And in the first world, as a first world nation, we've become wholly like, focused on doing what we can to distract and entertain ourselves. It's the same thing that happens in any normal societal cycle, right? It happened to the Romans, it happened to the Greeks, it happened to the Egyptians. When you essentially reach the top of the socioeconomic ladder, you become focused on just distracting yourself or entertaining yourself. Even conversations like what you and I are having right now, Rena, it's got educational elements but it's mostly entertainment. It's what we call edutainment. Mm -hmm. And you see edutainment everywhere. It's why people love to consume content. They want to be doing something. And then in the background, listening to this conversation for those moments when this conversation becomes interesting to them, and then they can tune in and listen to just two or three minutes of our conversation before they go back to doing whatever they were doing. It's totally common. It's a very natural human behavior. I did not want to outsource my children's experience. I wanted to keep that very much in-house. So we teach them to take care of themselves and we protect them. We help them educate themselves and we educate them, right? And the goal is that when they are, my son is 10 years old and he performs socially like he's 15. So at that rate, he's gonna be 18 and perform socially like he's 28 years old, right? Almost 30 years old. If I can create an 18 year old boy who behaves like a 27 year old adult, he's going to be good for the rest of his life. If I can create, my daughter is, is six. She will be six this summer. My daughter is almost six. 
she acts like she's eight. If I can keep this thread going, she's going to be an 18-year-old female who acts like she's a 26-year-old female, right? She's going to be fine. They're going to protect themselves, protect their loved ones, protect their families, and they're going to have fantastic productive lives. But I can't outsource the fact that it's my responsibility to get them through those first 18 years. And I'm still going to be like an advisor on call after they choose to leave the house because there's going to be a day where they want to talk about marriage and there's going to be a day where they want to talk about kids and they want to talk about starting a business and whatever else like a parent's job is never done at least i hope it's never done that's one of the things that makes my relationship with my mother so difficult because she very clearly believed that a mother's job is done at a certain point <laughs> yep i can totally relate to that how are your views on screens? We have probably more strict screen regulations than the average family does for sure. And, and it's for a number of reasons. First, just speaking biologically, the human eye doesn't have the cone and rod structure to be able to differentiate a shape on a screen that's backlit until they're about five years old. So the first five years of a child's life, they really can't even make out what's on the screen. All they see is lights. So if you've ever found yourself staring into a fire, that's what it's like for a kid under the age of five watching a television. Now, when they're two, it's truly just lights. When they're four and a half, there are shapes, but the shapes aren't as clear and defined as what you and I see because we have adult cone and rod structures in our eyeballs, but kids don't have that. They're still developing. So for that reason, it was really easy for us to keep our kids away from screens for five years. And when your kid doesn't know that a screen exists or when a kid doesn't understand that on the backside of your cell phone is a screen, or when they see you using screens and all they see are black words on a white background, it's not interesting to them, right? It's the TV shows and the flashing lights of video games. That's what's really interesting to them. So we spent five years it was pretty easy. And then because we spent five years, the next two to three years was also fairly easy because there was no habit of screens. But we started having having to use screens to help us in the educational process, mm. right? We started needing educational videos and we started needing visual aids and we started needing things that were just digital. So the kids started to explore and discover more of that. So then our kids got hooked on shows and games that had an educational element. So again, it was all good for like another two to three years. We would give them a timer. We would set a timer on their, they each have their own tablet device. We set a timer of one hour and then we tell them they can watch any educational show they want of a list of you know approved educational channels. And they would self-direct according to whatever they're interested in. We would know what they're interested in because we're teaching them according to what they're interested in. So a whole lot of knights and a whole lot of dragons and a whole lot of Scottish dance for my daughter that was just kind of what they watched for a while. Now it's trickier because now my son is friends with kids who are public school kids. Now my daughter is friends with people who are public school kids. So now they get these stories from their friends about horror movies and television shows and who knows what, just tons of stuff. And then my, our kids bring those questions to us. And then we start engaging in more of a collaborative dialogue about, well, if you want to watch this show that your friend told you about, then let's watch it together and we'll see what it's about and, and we'll talk it out, right? And that's how we end up watching Beyblade or that's how we end up watching Bluey or that's how we end up watching, you know, who knows what else, movies about killer clowns from outer space. But those are, for me at least, they're very productive conversations because it's still a strong bonding time with the children. They get to express their fears, their concerns, their confusion about the show. I get to ask them their thoughts on certain things. And what I like is 
I know my children well enough because I'm with them so much that I can actually see the benefit of the shows that they're watching. I watch my son watch Pokemon, for example. And then as soon as the 30 minute, 25 minute show is over, he turns off the TV, pulls out a piece of paper and starts creating his own Pokemon, right? He's deriving inspiration from the show rather than just sitting on the couch and watching the next show and watching the next show and watching the next show and then going comatose, right? So they're borrowing from entertainment. Essentially, they're borrowing from art and being inspired to create something on their own. And I can support that, but I know it's not gonna last forever. What's so crazy too is like when kids watch Star Wars or when they watch Pokemon or when they watch these kinds of shows, like I had a son that was drawing swords or creating, you know, Lego swords or became really into Star Wars at like four because my yeah. husband was into it and I brought cupcakes to school with swords on them. And I was called at school and told that that is a weapon. It's not okay. I was like, he's four. <laughs> it's this big. It's made out of Legos. <laughs> yeah. So that's something that's hard. Like I feel like today in school, this imagination that you're talking about or turning something that they watched into an idea can be shut down immediately. That's what's so dangerous about the public school system and the private school system for that matter, right? When you give someone else permission to cultivate your child's childhood experience, you have to own that that's what you're doing. You're not just helping them get an education. That's not what you're doing. You are giving somebody else permission to cultivate your child into the adult they want them to be, not the adult you want them to be. And then there's a factory element there too, because anytime you do something at scale, you lose personalization. So when you send 12 kids to a class, you're giving that one teacher and her teacher's aide or his teacher's aide, you're giving two people 12 children to manage. They're not going to personalize the experience for each child. They're going to find a way to standardize the experience for those children. Even worse, if you're going to a public school and it's two teachers to 25 children or more. I understand that there are certain families that have to do that. I don't fault those families. But for anyone out there who does not want that for their children, you are 100% not wrong and you are not alone. Because the world that you and I have to worry about, Rena, isn't the world today. It's the world 10 years from today. Our children don't have the capacity to think 10 years in the future. My children don't have the capacity to think more than like a day or two days in the future. Not because they're stupid, but just because that, that idea of relative time, they haven't had enough experience with it to be able to conceptualize it. You and I, we cast goals a year, two years, five years in the future. So the question becomes, what will the university system look like in eight years? Because that's the university system I have to think about, not the university system today. What will job applications, what will, what will the workforce look like 10 years from today? And when I think about all the children that are being put through public school right now, standardized to the lowest common denominator, turned into drones that just obey blindly whatever the authoritative, the authoritarian decision maker is in the front of the classroom, those are not going to be hard-charging, high-performing people. Those are going to be a generation of people who just escape into whatever digital device they have. And 10 years from now, that digital device may not even be in their hands. It might be in their brain. It might be in their shoulder, in their glasses. Who knows where it might be? My children are competing against the children of 10 years from now. I don't even put my kids in the same caliber as your average public school or private school student right now. Yeah, I, I appreciate everything that you're saying. I'll tell you, I mean, starting a podcast has 
helped me question so many things just by the people that I've interviewed. I don't even necessarily share my opinion on what some of my guests are talking about, but just to hear the other side, like I had a flat earther on and he was like, do you even know what's in the vaccine? I never even thought about questioning that, Yeah, but it did lead to me thinking more about it. You know, that's a very controversial thing to even say now, but I interviewed him like two years ago at the start of the pandemic. And yes, it did make me think and do more research than I probably ever would have. And same thing with homeschooling, never would have even thought about that. And now to interviewing entrepreneurs who are successful that got into good schools and didn't really see the need to be there anymore. You know, I am from the generation that you went to school and you followed all of these steps. And now, like you said, I'm not sure it's the right way. And when my kids question things, I'm like, good question. (laughs) And I think, you know, a lot of it goes back. What you and I are struggling with now, we're struggling with because we're trying to think of the future. And the benefit that we have is that 20 years ago, 15, 30 years ago, our parents were the ones struggling through the questions that you and I are struggling with now. Why did you go to a good school, Rena? Why did you do the right thing? Why did you have a successful career? Because your parents put you on a path to do the best that they thought you needed to do for that time. They were 10 years ahead of the life they were living when you were five years old or 10 years old, right? Yep. The sad thing is that that's not everybody. There's a lot of parents out there and a lot of children out there whose parents are living in the here and now just trying to survive. They aren't casting that vision forward for their kids. And there's nothing you can do about that, right? Whether you come from a a biblical background in the Torah or in the Old Testament where, you know, there will always be poor people and that's just the way it is, or whether you come from like the world of Buddhism and Taoism and there's always suffering in the world, whatever it is, all the religions of the world basically agree that not everybody has equal opportunity. That's just the way it is around human beings. So when you accept that not everybody is going to be equal, then it gives you a little bit more permission to put the effort and the time into setting your family and your children up for success. So I'm grateful that my mother and my grandmother set that foundation for me. I'm even grateful that my stepdad as strict and as disciplined and as surly as he was, he was hell-bent on making me an adult and an independent individual as early as humanly possible. And because of that, I was an independent adult at 18 years old, making my own decisions, knowing full well that I could never go back home to get help. We've got to be thankful for the families that were thinking 10 years ahead when you and I just wanted to go play in the creek. I love what you just said. I actually wanted to bring up spirituality because you've traveled to so many places that people live according to religion. Did you ever have any God moments along the way? So yeah, I was raised in a house that was anti-religion. My mother hated religion, all organized religion. She was raised in a Catholic household, strict Catholic Mexican household, right? Like she she had her own negative experiences. So when we were kids, the mantra in our house was you only belong to a religion if you're ignorant and stupid and weak. If you're strong and independent and intelligent, then you can see through all the religious lies, right? So that was the household that my sisters and I grew up in. Fast forward, I go to college, I went to college in Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs is a mecca for non-denominational Christianity. So all of a sudden I'm in university, in the military, surrounded by Catholics and Christians primarily. And I'm the one that's very different because I don't know any of their beliefs. I act completely different from their beliefs. I'm a jerk. A lot of them were very kind. 
Like there's a guy, I will go to my grave remembering this name. His name was Jessup, African-American guy from Alabama. I have yet to find him again. And he lived in a room right next to me at the Air Force Academy. I treated him like trash. I mean, he was just a nice, kind, friendly dude. And I never spared a moment to make fun of his glasses or make fun of his accent or make fun of his whatever, right? Just to just to give him a hard time. That dude, no kidding, killed me with kindness. So over the course of a year, all of my highs and lows, when I had my highs, everybody was there to celebrate with me. When I had my lows, all of my friends disappeared. But Jessup was always there. And he wasn't even a friend. He was just the guy that I kicked around to make myself feel better. So needless to say, I had several experiences of different variations like that experience I had with Jessup. And by the time I was 24 years old, I had made my own decision about coming to Christ in the Christian non-denominational Protestant church. So I had my rebirth. I was reborn in when I was 24 years old. And then I've lived my life through a lens of understanding that there is, there is a higher power out there that helps to give shape to everything, but that we don't understand how that higher power works. So as I've traveled the world with the agency and with the military, and I've seen Islam, and I've seen Buddhism, and I've seen Hinduism, and I've seen Catholicism, and I've seen Catholicism in Europe versus Catholicism in the United States and Catholicism in Indonesia, you start to see that we're all much more similar than we are different, right? Judaism is another fantastic example. You see how similar we all are. At a certain level, you start to see how silly we are that we spend so much time trying to understand faith when most of the scriptures out there tell us don't bother yourself. Don't waste your time trying to understand God because God understands you. Your job is to glorify and honor God, right? Whether you're talking Islam, Hindu, Christian, or Catholicism, your job is not to understand why God does what he does. Your job is to is to bring honor and glory to God and his creations. It's just that we do it in different ways. That's kind of my stance on spirituality and I have had preachers forbid me from stepping into their church when I have told them my point of view. And that's fine with me because I'm not trying to be a priest. I'm just trying to share my point of view on what I have seen from my worldly travels when it comes to a faith-based lens. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I think my dad will definitely appreciate that answer. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Yeah. So this is funny because I'm very curious to see your dad's thoughts on this. The hardest question that I was ever asked in any interview I had, and that's the question I want to share with your dad, is if you had a chance to sit down on a bench at a park at sunset with your great, great, great grandchild as an adult. So your grandchild, your great, great, great grandchild is an adult, 21 years old, and you have a chance to sit down with them at a park bench right now. What would you ask them? Man, that is a hard one. Yeah. I love the question because I love everything about the idea that that you're kind of juxtaposing who you are right now with a child in your family line that you'll never meet, right? So are they even going to know who you are? If they do, what have they learned about you? What have they heard about you? Or are you just going to be two strangers sitting down and, and you're just going to pretend like you're not related? 
I love that question because I'm very legacy focused. I'm always thinking about what is the legacy I'm not just leaving to my children, but that will carry on through my children to other family lines. That's not something my parents thought about. My parents were not legacy focused. And the generation that my parents came from was all broken homes, multiple divorces, lost partners, whatever else. So being so legacy focused myself, I'm very curious if it's going to work. Or am I doing a lot of work that's just going to be forgotten in the next generation? Ooh, I love that question. That's so good. I'm really interested to hear what he has to say too. Because legacy, my dad really understands it and really has tried to build it and lives for it. And I'm always like, did that skip a generation? (laughs) (laughs) My grandparents too, his parents, like they got that piece. They live for that piece. They lost a lot of their family in the Holocaust. My Mm. grandma went on both sides, wanted to have as many kids as they could. My dad's mom, she lost two children. My, My mom's mom had five kids. My dad's mom had four. They were big on family. And I'm just like, oh my God, I've got four, but I am struggling. (laughs) You haven't, how old are your four? I have a 14, 12, 10, and three. Yeah. As long as you've got that three-year-old, I mean, that takes up 80% of your energy right there. He's still in my bed. (laughs) He's almost four. (laughs) And then I said to my husband last night, oh man, I shouldn't even air this. It pisses him off so much. But I was like, I feel like a slave to this kid. Like, and he's like, don't ever use that word slave again. Don't ever say it. You totally need to meet my wife. That is the same conversation my wife and I have in the bed probably twice a week. She feels like a slave to these kids. And of course, I'm like, we're not slaves to our kids. But also, just tell the kids no. Like, we can just tell the kids no. That's but what then- he says. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. I'm like, do you want to sleep? Do you want to get your work done? Like, do you want to have a date night ever? Yeah, yeah. He you says that too. My husband literally says that. He's like, when the kid falls asleep, you can crawl out of bed. I'm like, I'm exhausted by the time he finally falls asleep. Like I've been laying there for an hour and a half next to him, holding his hand. There's a Bedouin camp in my living room that my kids didn't sleep in either. So I try everything to help them sleep because that, that is what our life boils down to until they're about seven years old. How do I get them to go to sleep at night? I don't even care about them brushing their teeth that much right now. How do you go to sleep every night? I'm so with you. Like the 10 year old, I'm like, did you brush your teeth? And he looks at me like, do I have to climb back up those flights of stairs? I'm like, you do. And then I'm like, how come you never ask him that? (laughs) (laughs) I love your wife already. And I just wanted to say, I just like knocked my whole stand here, but I think it's really cool that you see the gifts in your wife and you see her strengths and that I forgot what you said about her, but that now she's your queen and she's your direction and, and that it's okay for her to want a career and for her to say that she feels slaved and that she's birthed your kids. She's birthed your business. I I love that. And truthfully, I, I feel that way about myself. I'm like, I birthed four kids. I've nursed four kids. I've had four pregnancies. I deserve a freaking cleaning lady. I deserve to go dye my hair. I deserve to take a day off and read a book. I reclaim that time, baby. (laughs) It's true. And it's, I mean, it's everything you're saying is totally true. It's a shame. It is an absolute shame that there's any guilt that mothers have to go through when it comes to thinking that way. And I don't fully understand where that guilt comes from because I've not lived in the world, in any world other than the world I grew up in. 
which was a very, very female oriented world. But I, I get it. I get it. And I totally agree. I would also add to that, that you're fully entitled to every gray hair that you have. You can Thanks. dye your hair if you want to, but you've earned every gray hair that you have. So you might as well wear it with pride. There's a fantastic rabbi that I met who told me that he likes the gray hair in his beard because every gray hair in his beard is a reminder to him of something that he had to work to accomplish. And for that reason, I don't pull the gray hairs out of my beard either. I only have a handful of them, but they stand for something, right? And it was all because of something some rabbi told me when I was traveling through Tel Aviv. Like it's nuts. That's so cool. Thank you. Yes. I used to pull them and now there's too many. Oh man, this has been seriously amazing. And I would love to do a part two, or if your wife would ever want to come on, I would love to connect with her. So promote away. And I just wanted to say too, I absolutely love your podcast. Do you sing that theme song, Freedom? No, that's not me. That's actually something that I found years ago from a local musician in Washington state. And I heard that hook and I heard that message. And I was like, this is kind of the heartbeat of what I'm trying to build. So I bought you know, non-exclusive rights. And I was super happy to pay a local artist. He was super happy to get paid as a musician that was trying to like establish himself. And I've been using it ever since. I love it. Your show is really well done. So Thank congratulations. You. Yeah. Keep it up. I love how they're short and the sound is amazing. And I really feel like I get a lesson from each show and I know a little bit about your life through it. It's so good. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Yeah. Okay. So let well, people know how they can find your show and support you. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me at everydayspy.com anytime that you're on the internet or on a mobile device. And if you're on social media, you can find me everywhere at Everyday Spy. And if if you are in the podcast world and you like podcasts that are out there, then check out my podcast called the Everyday Espionage Podcast. Like you, Rena, we are a top 1% performing podcast in the world, and we have had an absolute blast building it. So I look forward to seeing everybody in the future through one of those three avenues. Amazing. Thank you. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. All right. What did you think of the CIA? I think that Andrew uh, has a masterful understanding of humanity, just like our show stands for legacy and giving people an opportunity to share their ideals and to see if we can make the human race a little bit better every day. Andrew has got that same belief. He's almost cut from the same mother, just like you. You know, it's an interesting question because when it comes to legacy, he says, how would you feel about talking to your great, great, great grandson or or daughter, I guess? What kind of advice would you give? But do you see how that's more important than money, more important than what job you're going to talk about? Because a hundred years later, does it matter what school you went to, what job you had? It's what can you pass on as a legacy of your family, its history, its wisdom, so that you keep the continuum going. How many times do I talk about that people and our families should be looking at that we don't live forever, and the best way to live forever is to have a continuum with your family. That was passed on to my parents, as you know, from their grandparents and great-grandparents, and I've tried to now share that with, what, three or four more generations. So I know the history of six or seven generations in 
on my father's side, but my grandmother's side, when it comes to my mom's side, goes all the way back to Joshua ben Nun, the sidekick of Moses coming out of Egypt. So you're talking about thousands of years ago. So if I could li even live forever and have my health, I'd like to live at least a thousand years so I could do exactly that, where I also could sit down with great, 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 great grandchildren and be able to hopefully share a story of my life. Yes, but no, to be able to share the knowledge and wisdom from all the different experiences so that they have an opportunity to do better and to have a better understanding of life. You know, the example of being a CIA agent, okay? It was learning to work with different governments, different people from all around the world. And isn't it fascinating that he tells it like it is, is that there's a manipulation when it comes to knowledge and information, and you don't question the government, and you don't question God. You're there to honor God, do the best that you can, and you don't question your country. You honor your country. It's almost like those words that John F. Kennedy said, don't ask what your country can do for you. It's what you can do for your country and do it proudly. And if you have to even give the ultimate sacrifice, which is your life, that that has meaning to protect humankind in one sense, but it's to protect the humankind of your country. And his broadcast is about freedom. It's to protect the right so that we can have choices where we can develop, where we can be able to have freedom of movement, freedom of religion, freedom of, of things. And yet at the same time, people think that they're entitled to this or they have the right to this and right to that. No, we live in a country where those rights are protected, where your government isn't going to be an oppressor. But we still have to be reasonable with each other. We still can't just call each other names or attack each other to where, where we're the bad guys. And that's another thing I would want to pass on to my great-great-grandchildren, is that I always want to be the good guy. And we want to be able to not be the bad guy. We want to be like in the comic books or like in the movies. We want good to triumph over evil. Isn't it unbelievable that his story comes from where the way he grew up, he saw both sides of the coin and decided to also have legacy and also to be able to say that certain things you don't outsource. You don't outsource being a father. You have to do the job yourself. And when it comes to certain educational needs, he says that the way I grew up, I really felt like I want to do just the opposite. I want to be able to be there for my children where I don't even trust the institution of education in this country, that I can do it myself and I can do it better than anyone else. So I rather outsource some of my job of other tasks where I can get professional people to help me, but I don't want to outsource my children's education. I want to be there for them because that's what he was lacking in his life. So he made the choice that I'm going to do it better than what my parents or step-parents did for me. And he even gives his stepfather credit that he forced me to be independent and be able to stand on my own two feet. Well, that's what a good father is supposed to do. And he respects him for that, but would have certainly loved the, as your previous guest had, unconditional love and attention and support. But that doesn't mean it's the end of the world if you don't have it, that you can still rise above your environment with the proper education, with the proper discipline of yourself. That's where the military came in. He didn't like the military. He didn't want to get up early or shave. Or, But the irony is, is that when he decided to show that he did want to help other people and did want to do the right things and join the Peace Corps, the CI said, you know, we need someone that maybe is a little unorthodox, that's disciplined, 
that wants the right things, can find his own way, can choose between right and wrong and bad and evil. And guess what? He ended up really with the perfect job because he was able to distinguish from all around the world givers and takers, good people and bad people, where he gets the perspective of what it's really all about. Isn't that what choices are? Choices are not just making good choices. Choices are also making bad choices, but hopefully learning from them so we don't repeat that type of history. Let's figure out how to get out of the maze of making numerous mistakes from generation to generation and find a path where our legacy can be of constant improvement and betterment, just like technology gets better and better every year. Let's see if we can get human nature to get better and better every year as well. I do think that you have some grandkids that will choose good over evil. They will carry that on for you. Absolutely. And your show, The Better Call Daddy Show, hopefully will be also a little bit of a reminder where you're capturing with your beautiful interviews and with so many diverse opinions and positions of things in life, passing that on. Maybe it's not just going to be my legacy, but this show is also a part of your legacy where you're passing on a tremendous amount of spirited truths. I also like, I, th I thought that was a good place to end it, but I also liked what Andrew said also is that our news media used to want to report truths and the facts and be well balanced. And now it's just a political race of left versus right instead of having a way to choose more of a middle path and understanding both sides of the equation where you're just getting one-sided points of view. And a show like this, The Better Call Daddy Show, levels the playing field. His show of freedom levels the playing field. And what was also interesting is that he brought up that he wants to be fair and truthful. And yet you met someone in a restaurant that wanted to know if CIA agents are truthful. They can be trusted. Yeah. And can be trusted. Isn't that an ironic twist? And the fact is, is that most FBI agents are like double agents. They want to be your friend. They want to know everything that, that you want to give them. But if you give them something that's off key, they're there to swoop down and put you in jail or to take away your freedom. So it's quite an ironic twist of fate there because he wants to be honest, not being an agent. He has that opportunity now to do that by knowing all the ins and outs of the political world and seeing it from both sides. So in order to really give a fair and balanced equation, don't you have to have all these experiences? I like it. All right. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.